right, you're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz. That's KSQD at 90.7 FM and online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Be Bold America coming up next with Jill Cody. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of Natural Bridges Media or KSQD's staff, volunteers, or underwriters. KSQD thanks attorney Ned Hearn for supporting this program. Ned Hearn specializes in intellectual property and business law with a focus on entertainment, internet, and computer software business and their convergence, intersecting content, media, and technology in the digital environment. More info at www.internetmedialaw.com. Thank you, Ned Hearn, for supporting KSQD 90.7 FM. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Be Bold America is a live bi-weekly talk show for those who are motivated to step out with the bold actions necessary to reunite this country and reclaim our democracy. Be Bold America is for those who want to understand the unique challenges ahead and who are curious to learn what they can keep doing, stop doing, and start doing to reclaim our democratic republic. Our future depends on it. Our program today is, is the Constitution in crisis. The Constitution is being strenuously tested. Is the spirit of the Constitution being upheld today? What are the challenges presented by those now in power? What is at stake? We'll be talking about these subjects and many more with constitutional attorney Michelle Welsh. We have big things to do. Before I introduce Michelle Welsh, or she is also known as Mickey, I'd like to welcome our bold KSQD in-studio community member and friend of the program, Mike Rodkin. Mike is a former five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz and served six terms on the Santa Cruz City Council between 1979 and 2010. Mike retired after teaching 42 years in the Community Services Department at the University of Santa Cruz. In addition, Mike served on the ACLU Santa Cruz Chapter Board of Directors for several decades. Welcome, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me on the program again. Our bold and expert guest, a call-in guest today, is constitutional attorney Mickey Welsh. Mickey is a professor of constitutional law and employment law at Monterey College of Law with a legal expertise in employment, education, and civil rights. She was chair of the Northern California American Civil Liberties Union Board of Directors and has been an active member in the Monterey County chapter for 40 years. Currently, Mickey chairs their legal committee. In addition, Mickey is past chair of the Monterey County Women Lawyers Association and has served on numerous organization board of directors in Monterey County. Welcome to the show and thank you for joining us today, Mickey. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. We're honored to have you. Well, just to dive right in, is the Constitution in crisis or is it now just a quaint piece of paper George W. Bush's Attorney General Roberto Gonzalez called it? Well, I think we need to define what a constitutional crisis is, and then I'll tell you why I don't think we're in one. Oh, good. First of all, 
I think there are only two ways that we could actually be in what we should call a crisis. The one would be the inability of our Constitution to address the issues of the day, that there just can't be a way out or, re or a resolution of issues under our constitutional system. And the second way is an unwillingness by our elected leaders to adhere to their constitutional roles and functions or to constitutional norms. And I actually think right now those two things are challenged, but neither of them has occurred or hopefully is likely to occur. And I think probably the ability of our Constitution, as it's done for the last 200 years, to be applied and to change and to be interpreted in various issues that are arising today, although challenging, is entirely possible. And as for our, our elected leaders and whether they will continue to adhere to their constitutional roles, again, I think in the political arena, we, we expect people to push as far as they can to assert as much power as they can. And the fact that that's happening shouldn't scare us too much. It's happened in history. It's bound to happen, and our Constitution has withstood it for a very long time. So you don't see that the um, what happened during the impeachment hearing, the trial actually in the Senate, when the Senate Republicans ignored uh, Trump's uh, actions against our country and Constitution and voted not to have witnesses and secure documents? after they took two oaths of offices, office for um, holding a, 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 a trial there? You don't see that as a, anything that challenges our Constitution? Oh, I do. Oh, good. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to imply that everything that's been happening uh, in the last few years is not a challenge to the Constitution. The impeachment power itself is a limited power to be used in drastic circumstances and I think was appropriately used in this case. And the Constitution itself allows for the Senate to completely control the trial, and that's what they did. And I do believe they didn't do it in the appropriate fashion. I believe they did not fully perform their duty, but duty is sometimes different from power. They had the power to do it that way, and they did, to the surprise of many of us. I actually had an expectation that Justice Roberts, our Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, would assert himself more into the process and ensure that they actually fully fulfilled their constitutional duty of holding a fair trial. But frankly, no president has actually been removed from office through the impeachment process. So one might question uh, that process in and of itself, but what they did uh, may not have been unconstitutional in itself because of the power granted to the Senate under the Constitution. I, I think, this is Mike speaking, I think we, we have uh, had a very slow process of sort of eating into some of the basic ideas of the Constitution. It's not as if it happened just suddenly and Donald Trump was the first person to raise uh, questions about the Constitution. Uh, for a very, very long time, executive power has been building in the White House, in the President's 
offices and administration. It used to be that the Congress actually made the budget uh, up until 1920, and then, you know, it was only then that the president began actually publishing a budget first, and the Congress then responded to, we, uh, that, that's not a violation. That's, I, I agree with your general comment. I don't think the, the Constitution's been broken, but I think it's, uh, it's a, so it's a qualitative issue, and maybe like boiling a frog to death slowly or something, it's, we slowly move towards removing powers that had been held by the House of Representatives to make war, for example. We saw that slip, and then Congress tried to take that back. That's happened again in terms of Iran recently. So I think there's a whole large number of issues where President Trump has sort of been pushing the envelope, and it's hard to say exactly at which point, you know, now he is, now our Constitution's not working. One, one line that I, bright line in the sand, or maybe I'm mixing metaphors here, is uh, that, that I've thought about is if President Trump were to ignore a direct order from the courts, uh, certainly following a, from an appeals court level, or certainly the U.S. Supreme Court, that hasn't happened yet. Um, We've talked about a number of issues where, where we've seen a number of issues where he sounds like he's about to ignore what the courts have told him. He certainly talks as if he doesn't care what the courts say about things, but he has, so far, his administration has not simply ignored a court order. Um, he's ignored, uh, for example, in the fight for executive privilege, he's uh, denied the, the, uh, right of the Congress to oversee in their traditional role many of the things the administration does. But I, I don't think we're in a constitutional crisis until some court forces says in effect you must uh, respond to the the, uh, the subpoena basically for testimony for or your, someone in your administration must and he would ignore that order that hasn't happened yet so I think your general point's correct uh, but I, I think you, there's a lot to be nervous about because I think he, he sort of walks right up to the edge of uh, putting our constitution basically in a box and closing the door on it Mickey I absolutely would have to agree. And looking back at the situation with President Nixon, it did come very close to that. President Nixon was ordered uh, by the Supreme Court to honor the subpoena for the tapes uh, that he had that were relevant to the Watergate investigation. And at that point, we were as near as we have ever been to a constitutional crisis had he not resigned from office and had he refused to produce those tapes. And so I agree with you that there are only a couple of circumstances where this would come up. The other circumstance that people are currently talking about is what if President Trump loses the next election in the popular vote or even the popular vote and the Electoral College and refuses to leave office by some maneuvering that arguably is permissible under the Constitution. And in in that, I hope, very unlikely scenario that the court would intervene appropriately and enforce the, the real intent of the Constitution in terms of our democratic election process. And those two things would definitely, either of them, cause a constitutional crisis in terms of how much executive power is there, and does it dominate the other two branches of government, which was never intended by our founders. We were supposed to have, well, arguably, according to the majority of the founders, three co-equal branches of government. You have to keep in mind that there were some of our founders who didn't even want a president. They wanted basically to hire an executive to carry out the legislative laws and orders, but they didn't want... Uh, a president with that much power because 
of the fear of, of a despot and monarchy. And it's interesting that the way it was set up, I think, was very ingenious from the beginning, that we had three co-equal branches of government, so we had separation on a horizontal plane with balance between those three branches. And then we also had the separation between the federal government and the states that was intended to create yet another balance. And all of this is supposed to keep power from being amassed in one place or person. So the question is, is it working? Is that still working? And I think currently it is, but as you've already pointed out, it's being seriously challenged in several ways. So I don't know if you, if you would agree that those two scenarios are the only ones I can think of that would cause a true uh, constitutional crisis in the sense that one branch of government has, in, in essence, gone rogue and refused to cooperate as a balance with the other two. I think another issue that uh, arises, and again, we haven't yet crossed the line there, and you look at the U.S. Supreme Court making a decision uh, about the Voting Rights Act, for example, from 1965, at what point do you no longer have a democracy when basically gerrymandering and other kinds of things take over? Uh, on the other hand, you know, Congress has the ability to override that by passing new legislation, trying to do something different. So perhaps and it's a little paranoid to think at this point that it's, an, it's a done deal or something. Right now, given the uh, coronavirus uh, crisis that we're in, I, one has to be a little nervous. They canceled the primary election in Georgia uh, earlier this week. Uh, I don't put it past Donald Trump to think, you know, well, we're not in a good position to have a national election. <laughs> you know, and again, I can even imagine a scenario in which that would be the reasonable thing to do uh, for a short period of time and run the proper way with the proper balance and on a bipartisan basis and so forth. But what scares me, of course, is the idea that it might happen because Donald Trump wakes up some morning and thinks, well, here's something I can do that everybody will think is a reasonable thing to happen. And it might that might be the end of our constitution in a serious way. And again, I, I'm not prone towards conspiracy theories or you know simply taking uh, one bad event that hasn't f come to fruition and thinking that's where we're going definitely. But those things keep me up at night. Well, if it's reassuring to you, I actually think there are three ways that the constitution is capable of being being implemented as intended. And, and one is that... And Mickey, can, Mickey can, uh, hold those three ways um, okay. for our station identification and some promos. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. The Santa Cruz County Public Health strongly urges community members to take precautions to help prevent the spread of illness, including wash hands frequently with soap and water, scrubbing at least 20 seconds, use at least 60% alcohol-based sanitizer if soap and water are not available, cough or sneeze into your elbow, not your hand, or use a tissue and discard, stay home from work or school if you feel sick. For general information on COVID-19, please call 211 or text coronavirus to 211-211 or visit santacruzhealth.org slash coronavirus. Again, you're listening to KSQD 90.7 FM. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org.
or catch up on programs by visiting the KSQD archives. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Today we're speaking with constitutional attorney Mickey Welsh and five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz, Mike Rodkin. Thank you, Mickey. Uh, and you were going to start with one? <laughs> you had three? Uh, well, yes. I'll just say this quickly. The ways that the Constitution has been defended and implemented and balance reasserted between the branches has been through interpretation by the courts when things have ended up there under Marbury versus Madison uh, right, right uh, after the establishment of the Constitution. The court is in a position to, as they said, say what the law is. And so that's the last effort is when other things fail to resolve, it goes to the court. And so one of the ways that the Constitution has been flexible and has lasted all these years is through different kinds of interpretation. And that different kinds of interpretation often relate to the political views of those who are on the court. And so that is one of the ways, though, that the Constitution has survived, is to be able to move and change uh, in its interpretation depending on who it is that is on the court. And that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all. They still have to follow precedent and follow the constitutional text. But if you have originalists or you have liberal interpreters, that makes a big difference. The other way is for each branch to assert its own authority. Congress can withdraw authorization that it gives to the president. And the way the president's power works, according to the old case of Youngstown, Sheet and tube is that the president's power is at its zenith when it's acting with the express or implied authorization of Congress. But if he doesn't have that, if the president is acting entirely on his own based on his own constitutional powers, the court said his power is at its lowest ebb. And so the courts interpret it that way. They can themselves limit the president's power, subject, of course, to his obeying their orders. But the other way... And the final way would be the constitutional amendment route. And that's very difficult, but it's possible. It took many years, but finally, 100 years ago, uh, we had the women's right to vote. But many times, like the Equal Rights Amendment, it takes decades for these amendments to pass, but it's possible. So those are three ways that the Constitution can survive changes in our society and still be a viable balance against majoritarian rule or against despotism, you know, taking place with power in, in one person or one entity. Um, following up on something that Mike had talked about, which was that uh, Trump has not ignored a court order uh, as of yet, but it seems to me the courts may be supporting him so he doesn't have to. And what I mean by that is the appeals, uh, uh, recently an appeals court ruled that Congress could not enforce uh, McGahn's subpoena. And what does that do to the Constitution's balance of powers? It, they, it seems to me that Congress's subpoena power has just been weakened. Well, yes, but that's exactly what I was saying. One of the ways that the Constitution continues is for those who are on the court to interpret it in a way that sometimes diminishes the authority of one branch or the other. Every time one authority, one branch has more authority or power, it diminishes the other two. 
And so the court right now does seem, some of the courts, uh, to be in sync with the administration and upholding what the administration is doing, like Trump versus Hawaii with the travel ban that was that was finally upheld after many, many lower courts had held it to be unconstitutional. So there are there are certainly examples like that. And indeed it does change the law and it changes constitutional interpretation. But you have to remember that every time the court rules, the court then takes the power away from the other two branches. And every time Congress legislates, Congress can take or give away uh, power to the president and take power or grant power to the courts. So it, it is a, a balance that is supposed to work, and I don't yet think it's not working, but it's certainly going in a direction that uh, many would disagree with, including myself, and there might be some ways that we can help to change that. I think part of the problem also is the extent to which, um, at least under the current circumstances, you you have two branches that gang up on a third, in effect. Um, if you take the fact that the Senate is not itself a democratic institution, the people of, you know, number of states have smaller populations than the city of San Jose, uh, we're not going to change that overnight and be very hard to imagine a constitutional convention that could change it because the interest of those states that have more power, whose residents have more power than they would otherwise if they're sort of direct election of the president and so forth. And so under that circumstance, you end up with a, uh, a Senate that's unlike, you know, that, that will not necessarily reflect the will of the people generally. And that's a whole issue about the, the, con- the limits of the Constitution itself and the way that it was established in order to have these states all join in. Uh, early on in the, in, the, uh, in the colonies, they basically wanted to have a certain uh, uh, right set of rights that would be guaranteed by having two senators each, uh, rather than being purely based on population as the House, or at least close to... Uh, uh, accurate as the house is and so there's a situation where the the the, uh senate uh uh doesn't challenge the nominations of the president for the court. The courts then turn around and say, we don't want to, when it no longer interests the federal government, whether or not you have uh, the voting rights are being abused by people, whether people are being restrained by the laws being passed by various states that make it harder for people to actually get to the polls or have their votes counted. And so the com- it's not any one branch that's sort of abusing this. It's the combination of the, at this point, the Senate and the, and the, uh, and the executive branch that, uh, sort of, and, and, and you sort of look at that. Then the third branch brought, brought into that as well, the Supreme Court. It's, so you see a situation where the, the balance that's supposed to be there, it's hard, it, it's not as, it's not as if the next election could fix that in an easy way. Now it could if everybody goes out there and votes and if in fact people's votes are counted and all the whole long list of things happens in, in place. But it's not a stretch to imagine an election in which uh, Trump gets reelected based on um, uh, less than the largest number of votes, in which uh, that's upheld by the courts. They, of course, you know, that's the Electoral College and the way that it works. It's part of the logic of the Constitution, although not literally in it, but set up in that structure. And in the end, we we basically lose the ability to stop the the uh, the president from doing a number of things, the issuing executive orders that there's no ability of Congress to overcome. The courts don't force it. And so we're very, very close to that edge, even though, again, I agree with you, it hasn't happened yet. And I, I don't think these are fantasies or, or ridiculous thoughts about what could happen. I think we're very, very close to this kind of thing happening in our country. Nikki? Well, I think 
one of the reasons why the president has amassed more power is because of the inability of Congress to act. And I, I do think that the electorate needs to be very firmly involved in changing that and trying to get a legislative branch that is capable of taking action, because that void is being filled by the actions of the president, because there's there are things that need to be done, and, and he is the only one in a position to do anything if Congress can't act. But I do, I, I do agree that the big state, small state debate that was going on since the time of our founding resulted in a system like we have now where each state, no matter how small, gets two senators, and then the House is made up. Uh, of representatives based on population, which is one of the most important things about getting the census done correctly. And the compromise was clearly to help protect the small states who wouldn't have joined the union right. if they hadn't gotten that kind of a concession. So when we call ourselves the United States, there's a whole lot of compromise that goes into that. And basing the entire uh, election on population, which is what the um, national vote is trying to accomplish through a state compact, uh, with, with the Electoral College being, um, well, I won't go, you, you dealt with that on a show that was very well done recently, but there are ways, I believe, that we can try to address what we see as the inability of Congress to act and to get things done in a way that doesn't leave quite so much to the court. But I do agree that when you have a system where all three branches of government are acting in sync, if you agree with what they're doing, you see that they're getting a lot done. If you disagree with what they're doing, you are very concerned and you think that needs to change. I'm thinking back to the 60s and the Warren Court where so much of the civil rights legislation was um, was upheld by that court, and that was seen as a very liberal court. Or uh, the New Deal under FDR, where the court started upholding the protective legislation and the aggressive legislation that literally got our country out of the Depression. So there are times when the government acting in sync has accomplished good things, and then there are other times when, depending on your political point of view, uh, there are a lot of bad things happening. So I don't know if this is helpful, but it's been kind of the essence of our political system that it is subject to these political processes. And I guess the question is, do you think it's worse now and it's not going to work anymore, or do you think that we will recover both politically and 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 legally from some of the actions that have been going on recently. I, I think I was particularly troubled by the Supreme Court decision that uh, the Voting Rights Act was no longer necessary. And uh, I agree with your point. It's up to the electorate to try and reestablish, to do something about this balance. But when the electorate doesn't really have access to uh, electing the Congress that reflects who they are and what their interests are and so forth, which is, again, it, you're right, it was established for a reason at the beginning of our country. We might not have had a uh, the Constitution we've got if we hadn't 
They basically had that compromise, which allowed these small states to get two senators. But we're in a situation where, uh, again, many times our elections are uh, very, I'm an optimist, so I haven't, I don't think it's over. I'm prepared to fight and think that we can win this next election. But I do think it's very troubling to think that, uh, there'll be a lot of votes suppressed in the next election. And it's not impossible to imagine that we end up, and if that were to happen in one election, it's perhaps over after that because the courts, that's the point at which the courts then continue to say that we don't need to change this, that nothing wrong happened here, uh, that we, the federal government doesn't have an interest in this question. So ideas like one person one vote, which were pretty, under the Warren Court, really kind of critical, sort of fallen by the wayside. So again, that's what makes me nervous about this, is the, the fact that the electorate might not have the ability to, um, based on a democratic vote, turn this around in some significant way. We might not have a fully democratic vote. There are lots and lots of examples of where the, again, the president's come close to stuff. When he, when he, the Congress passes a budget and then he, uh, and he, he approves that budget and then turns around and decides he's going to take money out of the military budget and spend it on a wall. Norm, under normal kinds of processes, the, um, Congress would pay, would override that, decide that they had been abused. Even it wouldn't be so partisan, and they wouldn't be some of them so much in, in the president's pocket that the Congress would say, "No, we passed a, a budget, and you're you know we we spent the money on what we want to spend it on, and you don't get to take it out of those categories and move it somewhere else." And uh, the, basically, the the courts have aren't even pulled into action because Congress has never taken the action to really override that executive order, which they could do, uh, everything being equal, but. Um, so again, where the where the uh, impulse comes, or where the ability comes to over overturn this uh, growing executive power, sometimes nervous about where that's going to come from when so much is being suppressed in terms of the actual democratic possibilities. Mickey, thirty seconds. Well, uh, quickly, uh, the Voting Rights Act is still in effect. What the Supreme Court recently decided in Rucco versus Common Cause was that they weren't going to hear a case about political gerrymandering because of the balance of powers and, and the, the state's rights to right. enact their own voting regulations. But the Voting Rights Act is still very much in effect when there is racially-based gerrymandering and when there is racial disparity in voting. And, and I, I do acknowledge that there is a lot of voter suppression going on, and some of that has been upheld by the court, for example, photo ID requirements. But... The Voting Rights Act still uh, gives me some hope that there are avenues of redress and that those are being pursued vigorously by lots of different organizations right now as we speak. That's a good point. We're going to take a break, I think. (laughs) (laughs) If you're just joining us, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Hi, I'm Tom Hartman, your host for Progressive Talk on K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, 4 p.m. weekdays. KSQD is a vital media resource for listeners in Santa Cruz and Monterey counties and worldwide on the web. Please help support this station by making a contribution to keep the station thriving. Go to ksqd.org and give what you can to help keep shows like mine coming to you daily at 90.7 FM. You know, with six large corporations owning most of the media, It's essential that listeners support grassroots, locally-run radio stations like KSQD. Community radio is responsive to its listeners and isn't afraid to challenge the status quo. Please join me, Tom Hartman, in supporting K-Squid, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Central Coast, by making your pledge today online at ksqd.org. That's 90.7 FM. 
K-Squid. Catch me right here at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Thank you. And tag, you're it. And we're speaking with Mike Watkin, five-time mayor of the city of Santa Cruz and constitutional attorney and former Northern California chair of the ACLU. Mickey Welsh, I'm your host, Jill Cody. Now, Mickey, um, is there anything in the Constitution that allows for a unitary executive or imperial presidency that the Republicans talk about? Well, the short answer is no, not as the Constitution has been read or applied, the imperial presidency words, those words derived from a book from 1973 by Arthur Schlesinger that was written about the observation that, especially during the 20th century, the power of the president has greatly expanded. And it was actually critical of the imperial presidency, as, uh, as maybe the title implies, that the, the founders had the intent that the president would faithfully carry out the laws and that as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, giving Congress war power, the president's powers would be limited. And the oath of office itself requires the president to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And those were seen as commands to the president as well as limits on the president's abilities and and powers. And given some of the powers that are delegated to the president, then I, I do believe that they have been um, overstated or the attempts have been made to overuse them. But still, it is a role with some limits. And of course, the check and balance against the president would be all the constitutional norms and requirements, but if the president refuses to adhere to those, then impeachment is the power that the legislative branch has. And that is actually what happened, whether it happened effectively or not is a different question. Well, one thing that worries me, and, I, and actually I, you wrote me this when we were coordinating this interview, I think you said the president has interpreted, since he was, you know, the trial wasn't... Uh, successful, or he didn't leave office, that the president has interpreted the Republican-controlled Senate vote to acquit as a writ of absolute power. And what concerns me now is that um, he thinks of himself as the imperial president. And, you know, what happens with the rule of law or the Constitution when a president threatens jurors or um, pardons people? Doesn't that end equal justice on the, under the law? The president does have the power to grant reprieves and pardons. That is one of the express powers that is given to him under the Constitution without any restraints on in what ways. Most presidents, as we've, as we've seen, have not really indulged in, in pardoning you know, their political allies like this president has done. But as far as what checks and balances might remain on this president, I do think the biggest one is coming up, and that yeah. is the election. I do, I do firmly believe that uh, Congress has the power to restrain some of his actions. The inability of Congress to do that, as, as we said earlier, is, is very unfortunate right now when you have a president who wishes to assert maximum power and authority and a Congress that doesn't intend to do anything to balance that. 
And so I don't think that the acquittal, which was kind of a foregone conclusion at the impeachment trial, was really a statement to the president that he has unlimited power and is now above the law. But whether that changes any of the conduct that we've seen in office uh, and the inappropriate remarks uh, on many, many social media and, and elsewhere that interfere with people's positions and authority, uh, those are very uh, concerning to me because they don't allow the administrative state to function as it should. And even though people criticize the administrative state as being overbroad and delegating too much power to the executive branch, it is with all the departments and agencies that help enforce our laws, it has been one way to protect the environment, to protect uh, various other interests that we have. And this president has seen fit to use the appointment power and the removal power in ways that interfere with the ability of those agencies to be run by professionals, as well as the statements and criticisms that are made of judges and others that are in their appointed roles. So I am as concerned, I think, as, as you are about whether there are appropriate limits that can be placed on these kinds of actions at this point. Well, I when, still don't know that it arises to the level of a constitutional mm-hmm. crisis in itself. What is the effect, since he has taken the message from um, the acquittal vote by the Senate as having absolute power, what does it do to our court system and rule of law uh, when the president threatens jurors, people that have followed their legal responsibility are volunteering, they've stepped up, and there's, they sit on a jury, and the, it doesn't go the way he wants. He's, he's threatened people um, that do their constitutional duty. I must say, if anybody else who was not the president did that kind of thing, uh, they they would probably be prosecuted for you know interference with the the justice system, especially some of the intimidation of witnesses and things of that nature. Uh, but because the president, according to the Justice Department rules, not the Constitution, the president can't be prosecuted while in office then I do believe that President Trump feels free to do these things because he's not going to be prosecuted while in office. I do think he is not sufficiently aware that he could be prosecuted after he leaves office. And whether or not that happens will, I'm sure, depend on the political uh, events that occur between now and then and who is elected president next. I have to say it's pretty rare that I find myself ever agreeing with anybody in the Trump administration, but the the, the reason that presidents um, can't be taken to trial on the things that they do in state courts, for example, when they, you know, New York was the general uh, attorney was trying to like go after the president. If you imagine this, imagine you have a president that is uh, elected by a landslide, loved by the people, et cetera, et cetera. But somebody in some state, I'll pick a random one, Mississippi, decides they don't like what the president's up to and haul him into court over what he's been doing, the president can't carry on his or her job because they're busy trying to defend themselves from some stupid charge against them in the state of Mississippi. And so there's a reason. I, I don't think that and, and there's a principled reason that uh, presidents are not subject to the whims, they call them whims, but even the 
concerns of various states in terms of legality. That that does make sense to me. I understand that logic. I don't like the fact that Trump you know does it the way he does, but I can imagine. And take, take Obama. And if Obama were to do something and then some state decides, you know, that they're going to prosecute him for not being an American citizen or whatever the heck they pick, some crazy idea, you know, it would totally tie him up in knots to have to go, would he have to then go deal with that state? Do he have to show up in court? Does he have to spend how many days or months or whatever trying to defend himself in a state court against the actions of which he's been accused. So I think there's a logic to that that makes a certain amount of sense. I'm not happy about the way it gets gets used, but I think your point's well taken. If, if at some point we actually have some restoration of general justice in this country, there's no question that Trump would be subject to a whole bunch of things that he's violated, uh, not only in terms of state laws, but various federal laws. And so there's definitely an, an outcome there. Again, the, the, I think a lot, as you said, does depend upon the electorate and people deciding that they've had enough of this, which suggests that some of our problems are not really in the Constitution or the way it's being carried out, but at a much deeper level, when people don't care about facts, when you think, when people understood that, you know, all of the protections that we got for clean water and clean air and uh, in just scientific information about stuff... Um, Basically, the, the, uh, they shut down the satellites that gather data that's necessary to understand what's happening with climate change. So people, not even the administration, but even private citizens that want to try and get more information can't get it because those satellites uh, data that's coming from them is no longer useful to us or available to us. Um, I think that situation makes it particularly scary as well, that, you know, the, that the public themselves don't seem to know what's going on. And it's not that the American public have always been fully educated and understood everything that was happening, but there's a level of sort of disassociation from facts and the truth that's, that's sort of new and shocking uh, that's gone well beyond anything that really happened in earlier periods, I think. Mickey? I agree. I am a firm believer in freedom of speech. And the courts have held that we have a constitutional right to lie. But I believe it's the duty of, of people in political office or people in campaigns to tell the truth. And when people try to distort the truth intentionally, uh, it does create that kind of a result. And I think that's one of the reasons the founders did not leave us with a pure democracy, for fear that someone of great charisma and someone of great personal power would be able to sway people and, and, and basically convince them to do things that are against their interests and to vote for people that are not going to serve them well. And I, I agree that that is a real problem, and that is one of the conflicts, one of the interesting conflicts that I have when I think of the Constitution in conflict is the conflict between free speech and equal protection and the conflict between free speech and truth. The founders uh, believed that freedom of speech was going to lead us to political truth that the debate, the marketplace of ideas, was what was going to save us because the truth would win out and people would then see that their interests were um, to protect what is important. And this is not always true with the kind of disinformation that we have now and the lack of information, the manipulation of information. It concerns me that the backlash to that, the response may be to say, well, let's limit speech. And that especially also arises in the conflict between free speech and equal protection in racist speech. 
and the the events that we've seen in places like Charlottesville, where people were actually harmed by people that are riled up by speech. And so one of the constitutional conflicts I see is not only in the area of, of voting rights and the balance of powers, but also in the area of free speech. What do we value more? The freedom to speak, whatever it is, truth or lie, or the equality of our people and the democracy of our voting system. I, I think we're off on a bit of a tangent, but you know, the, when the FCC, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, decided that there was no longer a requirement for equal time or that uh, they had to balance speech in some way, in other words, there was free speech. People could say whatever they wanted to, but that you had to offer some opportunity for people to challenge that. That no longer exists. So you can have a Fox News that just gives you one point of view all the time, calls themselves fair and balanced, and of course, quite the opposite. And so Without going after, I, I share your view about as a also long time time uh, ACLU member, you know, support for the idea of free speech. But the the idea of to what extent free speech is at least subject to some, uh, again, not limiting what you can say, but requiring that there be some debate, that there be some uh, uh, alternative points of views presented, and as you get a monopolization of the media it becomes much more difficult to get those alternative views out to people. And so it's not surprising sometimes that people are just completely, you know, misinformed about what the heck's going on. And as a result, come up with weird things. And finally, I think the founding fathers had a little bit too much confidence in rationality, the idea that people were going to act in their own rational self-interest, and they don't necessarily, never have. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. This week on New Dimensions, a conversation with Terry Tempest Williams, acclaimed writer, conservationist, and activist. How do we find the strength to deal with uncertainty in the world and difficult things in life, things that are scary, painful, or heartbreaking? Williams shows the power of imagination to answer these questions. Imagination allows us to hope and leads to real solutions, change, and growth. Join us for this inspiring conversation about sharing, collaboration, and building community and a better life. New Dimensions immediately following Be Bold America at 6 o'clock on KSQD 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Jill Cody, and we're speaking with constitutional attorney Mickey Welsh and former five-time Santa Cruz mayor Mike Rodkin. And Mickey, before we, you know, this last quarter hour, I like to talk about keep, stop, starts, but there's um, one, when we, we slipped sort of talking about free speech there, and uh, I should probably have you back just for a whole other program on that subject, but I... But where we met was when you were talking about free speech, and uh, you were referring to some laws that uh, I guess the uh, media have to adhere to. And I was asking you about how Bill O'Reilly could, uh, Bill O'Reilly could get away with saying "Tiller, Tiller, the baby killer," uh, because it didn't seem to fit into um, the free speech laws. And eventually, you know. Um, uh, Dr. Tiller was murdered in his church. So, um, do you have any answer to that for me right now? Well, as Mike pointed out, the FCC does have greater control of media speech than would be would apply to other kinds of speech in other settings, and so that would be one thing. But really, the law prohibits only incitement 
And you might argue that that was incitement because someone did, in fact, carry out what he said. But the law of incitement is fairly limited and applies only to an immediate risk created by the speech before that speech can be stopped. So free speech is quite broad. And one of the reasons I brought it up, uh, not to get it out of context of this program, but as one of the ways that we can enter into a constitutional crisis is to have issues that the Constitution cannot resolve. And so I am still hopeful that the, the Constitution can help in resolving these issues. But I also think as far as those kinds of statements that are made through media, that Congress could take a more active role in not censoring speech, but in setting standards for certain different kinds of media. And right now, speech on the Internet is not subject to regulation at all, uh, with the exception of child pornography and certain other kinds of uh, unprotected speech. So it is definitely uh, an issue that could at some point lead to a constitutional crisis if these issues simply can't be resolved. And when I say constitutional crisis, I merely mean that the Constitution won't be able to resolve it, and when that happens and the courts cannot intervene, then uh, people will, will move to self-help and other kinds of less desirable behavior. Uh, well, that does that does answer it. The immediate risk, um, I guess someone could have looked at when Bill O'Reilly said that phrase, uh, how close it was to when um, the doctor was actually uh, killed. But I, it just uh, is beyond me when somebody can incite, you know, something, say something like that repeatedly, and then it happens uh, and not be accountable for that. The other thing that. Uh, you were talking about too is that this current president's um, viewer's role was not as a leader for the common good. Can you say um, a little bit more about that? Well, the, the current president, like some others, I believe, seems to see his role as one of power. That what power he has, he should exercise in ways he believes uh, are appropriate or if he can do it, he should do it, rather than seeming to always have the concerns of the people and what the system of government uh, that is the role he's in is going to, to do that would be appropriate in these circumstances, rather than looking at it as, I can do this, I have the power to do this, so I'm going to. And it does seem sometimes that the focus on merely having power is the wrong focus for the role of the leader of our country, and that there has to be more of a concern for what the problems are that truly he can help to resolve, not just the power that he has. And, and we have such, I mean, that's the thing about President Trump that's so amazing is that on a daily basis, um, he does things that, if you look at them, uh, are not in the public good. And clearly, and he says as much himself when he, when he for example, tries to get a conference to happen at one of his uh, hotels or uh, casinos or something, or um, where he has direct economic uh, benefit from it. And you would think if he would, someone would do that, people would say, look at that and say, oh my gosh, this guy's just self-interested. He's looking after himself. But the response is, well, this does, shouldn't everybody do that? That's wonderful. And the whole set of values is being established by this presidency that 
deep that uh, drive deep into American life in in a lot of ways. So it, the, uh, back to the earlier issue of free speech, I think it's worth pointing out that one of the reasons for thinking about defending uh, free speech, with the exception of incitement, but pretty much absolute free speech, is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I mean, we'd like the idea of like limiting free speech, but imagine what would be happening right now if the president had the ability to limit free speech. It would be our speech that would be limited, and we'd be very unhappy in that situation where basically, you know, we'd all be arrested for, you know, saying nasty things about the president or something, deciding that that was, I mean, it's one thing to threaten the president's life. It's another just to sort of challenge what he's doing and suggest he's doing things that are not in the public good and so forth. But I could, not that hard for me to imagine him, if, if he felt there was the possibility of suppressing free speech, that's the way it would go, not the other way around. We wouldn't be limiting the, the free speech of uh, racists that are out there threatening people's lives. It would be our speech that would be threatened. So that's one reason for thinking about supporting free speech in general, because it can be used against us if we start to undermine it. Well, that's actually, uh, it actually happened in Michigan when um, Rick Snyder was the um, uh, governor of the state because he sent in his uh, executive managers and one of the cities that he sent his executive manager into shut down the community radio station because that's how the public in that um, city uh, would learn about what was going on. So that's actually happened. Um, now, you're, you have a favorite quote, Mickey, a favorite Thomas Jefferson quote, which I think is a great lead-in for the keep doing, stop doing, and start doing section. Uh, what is that quote that you like to share? What's become one of my favorite quotes that Thomas Jefferson is attributed to him as saying, we in America are not governed by the majority. We in America are governed by the majority who participate. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. It is perfect. So, um, yes. so under the keep, stop, start, what do you think uh, listeners should keep doing? Well, I would first say participate and educate oneself. Keep educating yourself. Uh, for those people who are listening to this program, listen to other kinds of programs and read materials that you can trust the source. You know they are true. Fact check everything. Participate. Commit to the Constitution and its defense. And keep on creating hope that we have a system in our country that can protect the rights of all individuals against majoritarian rule and against overuse of power by our leaders. And that will be the preservation of our constitutional system. So I would say that's what needs to be kept. And you want to Mike, know what should stop? Well, I was gonna, looking at Mike to see if he had any uh, keeps for us. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of absolutely critical to keep, to keep doing is this idea that we have to try and reach out beyond our immediate circle of friends um, and communicate our ideas to people. I, I spent a lot of time when I was on the ACLU board here going to middle schools and high schools talking about the Bill of Rights. Um, 
whatever the issues are, again, the stuff that's happening with the president, current kinds of questions, rather than, you know, talking among your friends and sort of wringing your hands together about how horrible it is and the thing, which, you know, there's lots of bases to do that and you can certainly get caught up in that, that we, that we really need to keep reaching out to people as this radio program tries to do that go beyond your immediate circle of friends and trying to educate people about what's actually happening. So I think, I think that's a kind of critical function. It's too easy to fall back and sort of feel almost self-satisfied in your anger and upset about what's going on and not be effective in actually changing it. So the idea that people actually will go out and talk to other people, knock on doors, make phone calls even to other states to talk about what's going on in the next election, that seems to me kind of critical work that people have been doing, but they need to keep doing that in a serious way and even step it up. And uh, in the next two minutes, uh, what what are your uh, stop doing and start doing, Mickey? Well, I would say stop complaining and despairing <laughs> and point your finger at the enemy and start moving forward. Mm, perfect. Start, mm-hmm. start talking, start advocating, start modeling respectful disagreement, and here's what we really need to do, vote. Mm-hmm. I'll just double down on those. I, have, I wouldn't have anything better to add to those. I think those were excellent. <laughs> Um, well, th- thank you so much, Mickey. Thank you very much, Mike. Just to also send my thank yous to Be Bold America's program engineer, Emily Dunham, working on the board here. And I give another big thank you to you, Mickey, and spending your time with us, you, Mike. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I actually learned a lot. <laughs> Next on Be Bold America, we will be discussing civilization's plight are we engineered for a world that no longer exists for all of human evolution we've been rewarded by nature for maximizing our growth that reward the very brain chemistry that has has programmed us is now propelling us toward calamity climate change political fascism pandemics exponential increases in denialism fake news and lies of all kinds these topics will be discussed with cabrillo college's dr rich nolthinius don't miss hearing this well-advised discussion on sunday march 29th at 5 p.m If you missed any of our programs, you may find them on KSQD's archives or on my website, jillcodyauthor.com. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for new dimensions. My name is Jill Cody, and thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.